This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. You'd expect a trial to change a defendant's life, but a juror's? Bruce Grodet wasn't exactly thrilled when he got a jury summons back in 1997. He had just started a media company. At the time, he lived near Littleton. And Grodet showed up at the Arapahoe County District Courthouse, figuring he wouldn't be chosen. CPR's Andrea Dukakis picks up the story. In fact, Grodet was chosen for a murder case. My name is Bruce Grodet, and I'm a former juror on the Curtis Brooks trial. The case involved 15-year-old Curtis Brooks. During the trial, basically what we heard was that Curtis was at the arcade in the Aurora Mall. Curtis Brooks had been kicked out of his house by his mother. She was addicted to drugs, was abusive and neglectful. It was snowing outside, and Brooks was inside the mall playing video games when he met three boys around his age. At some point, the boys hatched a plan to steal a car. They all left the mall and went over across the street. That's where 24-year-old Christopher Ramos was walking out of an ATM at a bank. They confronted him. One of the individuals actually shot the gentleman, shot him uh, in the head. Grodet says the boys tried to steal Ramos's car, but the car wouldn't start. So they ran through the snow. There were police at a station a block away. And they were able to very quickly follow the tracks and follow the kids uh, to an apartment complex. From the beginning, Grodet says the jury understood that only one boy of the three fired the fatal shot. They weren't saying that Curtis Brooks is one who fired the shot. But the prosecution explained that meant Brooks was guilty of felony murder, which is still murder in the first degree. If you're involved in a robbery or any other circumstances and there's a someone killed in that, anyone involved in it is just as culpable as the person firing the shot. Grodet says the jury deliberated for a day. We went in and gave the court our verdict. They found Curtis Brooks guilty. Grodet and the other jurors were excused to the jury room, and the judge came in with the prosecuting and defense attorneys. And uh, they said, you know, uh, thank you for your service. Do you have any questions for us? They had a lot of questions, and the answers they heard after the fact gave them a very different picture of the verdict they just delivered. What we heard was that Curtis had no prior criminal record. However, the other three individuals had lengthy rap sheets. And what we found out was that the three that morning were on basically a crime spree. They were breaking into houses. They had stolen cars. I asked the judge, well, will this get to be something that we get to consider during uh, the deliberation for the sentencing hearing? And maybe the judge had said something earlier, very in the beginning of the trial. I certainly don't remember it. But the judge said, oh, no. This is a felony first-degree murder trial. The fact that you found him guilty makes him automatically convicted to life in prison with no possibility of parole. Grodet said he was shocked. I could hear several of the other uh, jurors in the room uh, gasp. One of the questions that was asked was, did you ever try to work out a deal with him? Because he had no prior convictions, the defense attorneys told us they begged But prosecutors did offer a plea deal to one of the boys that took part in the crime who, like Brooks, didn't fire the fatal shot. Grodet notes he's white and is now out of prison. Another boy who was 13, also white, was too young for adult court and went through juvenile court. 
He's also out. Brooks and the shooter, both black, are the only ones who remain in prison. I come from a very conservative-type family, and, and I really grew up with, if you do the crime, you're going to do the time. Now, after this trial, I really realize that there's so much more in play. The trial changed Grodet's views on crime and punishment for good, and eventually Colorado changed its laws, and juveniles could no longer get life without parole. The U.S. Supreme Court further ruled that these kinds of harsh sentences for youth were cruel and unusual punishment. Yet some 50 inmates in Colorado have been living in limbo. And slowly, really slowly in Colorado, they're getting hearings to be resentenced. Grodes felt so strongly about the Brooks case and his role in it that he's testified before the state legislature on the issue, even visited Brooks in prison near Pueblo. He came here and visited me a few years ago, and we sat down and talked for about two hours. Curtis Brooks says it was weird at first. After all, it's been 20 years since the trial, and Brooks is 38 now. Brooks says they didn't talk much about the trial or the crime. He was more interested in basically who I had become since coming into prison. Brooks told Grodet he was put in solitary confinement when he first arrived in prison. He was 17 at the time. They said it was because of his bad behavior in the county jail while he was awaiting trial. In solitary, Brooks says, he started reading voraciously. And I got into philosophy at that time. And once I did that, it became a thing where I hungered for that knowledge and I spent my days just learning. Brooks told Grodet he read many of the great philosophers, studied languages, and learned math. He got his GED and has been taking classes from prison at a nearby college. Brooks lives in what's called an incentive unit. It's for inmates with good behavior. Though tomorrow, he'll be in Arapahoe County Court for a resentencing hearing, and instead of life without parole, it's likely he'll get 40 years with the possibility of parole. That means Brooks could be in his 50s before he's released. George Brockler is the district attorney in Arapahoe County and a candidate for Colorado Attorney General. Brockler is known for being tough on crime, but he says after years of experience and with teenagers of his own, his views on crime and punishment for juveniles have evolved. So, yeah, my views have changed. Brockler says Curtis Brooks and others like him deserve to spend at least some of their lives outside of prison. Still, he says Christopher Ramos, murdered at that ATM, and his family are the real victims. And just a note, we were unable to reach the family. They've since moved out of state. They get no parole from this. They get no reprieve from this. Their loved one is going to be in the ground forever. Just two of the 50 or so inmates in Colorado sentenced as juveniles to life without parole have been released. Their fate often depends on where in the state they were tried. Some jurisdictions are more lenient than others. Curtis Brooks's defense attorneys hold out hope that the legislature, the courts, or even the governor could take further action and Brooks could get out much sooner. If he is released one day, there's one thing that scares him. That I would forget all of this and become complacent. And that's why I try to put myself mentally in a place where I will never forget the circumstance that brought me here or the impact that it had on Christopher Ramos or his family. For now, Brooks waits for tomorrow's hearing, where he'll see an ally in the courtroom. Bruce Groday, the man who 20 years ago helped send him to prison. I just really hope that Curtis has a chance of a life he really deserves because he absolutely has paid for his crime. 
I'm Andrea Dukakis, CPR News. What good is it to legalize a crop if you can't get good seeds? That's been the trouble with hemp. Coloradans legalized hemp at the same time they greenlit recreational marijuana back in 2013. But hemp seed has been hard to come by. Remember, there's still a federal ban. Well, now there are legit seeds suited to Colorado. We're going to find out what this means for farmers and consumers. Wendy Mosher is CEO of New West Genetics in Fort Collins. Her company created this first U.S. bred and certified hemp seed. Wendy, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Ryan. New West had been working on rice and canola, and then you decided hemp. I understand you felt like you were in the right place at the right time, but you were also a bit scared. Sure. There was a little trepidation because initially, you know, when Amendment 64 passed, um, there still weren't any federal protections for hemp. And, And following that, in February of 2014, the federal farm bill passed. And in it, it legalized R&D on industrial hemp in states where it was legal. Okay, so So, research and development only in those states that had green lit hemp. Correct. And those are limited protections. Mm -hmm. So it's not that that's total cover, Mm -hmm. uh, even so. But I imagine that gave you some peace of mind. It did. That's when we said, okay, we can do this. We will invest in this research and development. Absolutely. I just just want to say that hemp used to be really common in the U.S. I mean, it was used to make paper and clothing, building materials. And that market essentially vanished when the U.S. made the crop illegal in the 1930s. That's correct. That's correct. The, the majority of the application early on um, was for fiber. And, and the, the market has changed significantly. It's, it's not the demand for fiber, at least for U.S. production right now, because when we lost that, we also lost um, the ability to process it. So. That's right. You grow it, but then you have to turn it into a shirt, and that requires some amount a lot of, of infrastructure. Correct. We'll talk more about what the market is then for hemp in a bit, but I really want to focus mm-hmm. on this seed. Uh, One of your hemp varieties is qualified for the Association of Official Seed Certifying Agencies. Not something I knew existed until this story. (laughs) Uh, And it's the first in the U.S. to do so. Why is that a big deal? I mean, can't you just get hemp from from Canada, for instance, or seeds from Canada? Sure. So farmers look for certified seeds. Um, certified seeds been validated by a third party. That uh, The acronym for that long word is AOSCA. So we'll just use that now. AOSCA. <laughs> and it, it validates that it does what the breeder or producer says it does. So it's uniform for harvest. It has good germination. And it's genetically pure. So um, that's important because on the market right now in the U.S., you get a lot of seed that is not certified. And that doesn't guarantee that that seed is harvestable. And indeed, farmers have found this out the hard way. They have paid for a seed. They are hoping it yields something. And then what happens? They have left fields um, alone and not harvested due to either really horrible germination or, you know, the stem thickness is too much because it's not adapted for the U.S. Ah, not adapted for the U.S. In other words, uh, the seed that you are bringing to market, presumably, is adapted for the, what, the climate here, the soil here? Correct. And, and mainly for the latitude. Um, in this, this, product, this crop is highly impacted um, by latitude because it impacts its flowering time, which in turn impacts yield. So that's a temperature thing in part, I guess? Um, part of it is temperature, part of it, but m- most of it is daylight length. Ah. And so how it's adapted to uh, the season length and the daylight length. So it's been a crapshoot for <laughs> hemp farmers here too for it sounds like. It has. It has. And those seeds you mentioned from out of the country, some of them are certified. And those breeders are wonderful breeders. They've been doing it for a while. But what they're breeding for is their 
latitude and their climate. So all of those seeds are usually for bred for around 51 degrees uh, or higher. So are that's you, the problem. Are you offering your seed for the same price, for cheaper, because you don't have to ship it or what? I actually don't know their pricing, but we have, you know, a, a premium product because it has been adapted for our area and it's been proven to produce um, and to germinate. We have a high germination between 94 and 99 percent, which is excellent for any species. Um, so this is a premium product that's been adapted for here and will yield more than any of those other uh, varieties will. Okay. When I hear you say premium, that means people might pay a premium. (laughs) You have done this in concert with the state of Colorado, the Department of Agriculture here. So this has a, a sort of state imprimatur on it to some extent, I guess. Absolutely. So it's the only species we have that needs a two-part certification. So not only are we certified by AOSCA, but we've been validated by Colorado Department of Ag to be low, stable, point federally compliant, 0.3% THC. That's right, because let's be clear that mm-hmm. what separates hemp from marijuana is the level of THC, that things that thing that makes you high. Correct, correct. So it's the cannabinoid you want to keep down, and that has been validated by the state of Colorado as, as, uh, as well as AOSCA. They've got to say, this is hemp, not marijuana. Correct. This, this doesn't have the And qualities. then they hand it to AOSCA for their evalu- uh, evaluation. Okay, again, the Association of Official Seed <laughs> Certifying Agencies. <laughs> don't, don't bother. <laughs> don't bother. Um, I, I, before we talk about the uses then in the market for hemp. Uh, Is it possible under the new administration that the protections afforded hemp growers could be reversed in some way? Or is is that pretty solid given that it was part of a farm bill? We we believe it's pretty solid. And that's been proven true since 2016, too, in the appropriations budgets. There have been additional protections afforded to us by mainly by Republican senators. So Mitch McConnell's a big fan of industrial hemp. So we have really strong bipartisan support. And that includes, you know, the DO, it's prohibitive language. The DOJ cannot use their funds to prohibit interstate transport from between states where it's regulated. So we have a number of protections. Okay. That means that you can show ship your seed to another state that has legalized hemp. That is our interpretation, and that was the intention of the appropriations. What if it crosses into a state in the mail that hasn't legalized hemp? Well, there you go. (laughs) It's the gray area. Okay. So so. it's a risk. It's a calculated risk that you take. So Fascinating. Or not. But hemp farmers have presumably already been taking calculated risks importing seed from abroad. They have. And a lot of times, you know, departments of ag and universities universities have really stepped up. Last year, our varieties were at um, UK and Kentucky, at uh, U Nevada and Reno and at Purdue. And all of those entities, you know, have a system worked out with the DEA where they get kind of permission, import permission. So that's what makes us feel most comfortable. Interesting. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're talking about the first U.S. bred and certified hemp seed. It comes from a company called New West Genetics in Fort Collins, and its CEO is Wendy Mosher. And Wendy, let's indeed talk about the customer here. So where is the hemp market in the United States these days, and particularly in Colorado? Right now, the largest market for hemp is um, from its flour. So you can get products from its flour, its fiber, and its grain, its seed. Mm. Um, The largest market is for its flour. And from this flour, people are sourcing cannabinoids other than THC. So the chemical um, molecule. And they, you know, they're using these to make nutraceutical products. Nutraceutical Mm -hmm. products. Um, So things for their health. 
Correct. Okay. Mm-hmm. Like what? What are the applications? People believe, and, and there's some preliminary evidence that um, it treats inflammation. And, and we know, in fact, it's um, one of the cannabinoids, CBD, is in stage four clinical trials right now with the FDA for its indications for particular types of epilepsy. So so there are some, there's some body of evidence for particular indications, and there's beginning evidence for other indications. Okay. But it sounds like there might be a warning associated with claims like that that say not approved of by course. the FDA. Of course. Well, no. Yeah. We encourage our industry to not make claims and they've done a great job, I have to say. Um, But the education is out there about what these cannabinoids do. And presumably the research has to catch up. Exactly. Cannabis has been, you know, cart before the horse. Yeah. And that includes hemp. Absolutely. term. Do you think that the fiber market would ever bounce back? I mean, there are people who see hemp really as a kind of savior of the world, right? They look at it and and they say it requires so much less water than cotton, for instance, um, and that it, you know, it it can grow bountifully in drier places. Is it the superhero of crops in your mind? Um, I wa- <laughs> let, let me get to it. I don't believe it's going to save the world. I do believe it's very important um, for farmers to have another rotational crop because it does indeed need less water than cotton and especially even than corn. So then our typical commodity crops, it takes about, you know, there's there's emerging agronomic data on this, but even our data has shown it needs about half the water of corn. But the market has to be there. Exactly. And the market has been, luckily for us, has been growing as we develop our varieties. The second biggest market, though, I want to touch on is the grain. It's an incredibly healthy grain. It's got, you know, an omega-3 to 6 ratio that is only seen in, like, fish oil. It's a, It's got a wonderful balance. It competes with soy in that its protein is very complete and very digestible for animals. So it's a very healthy, wonderful seed. And that market is speeding up as well. I feel like I've seen hemp seed in cereal, maybe. Sure. Well, you've seen it as protein powder. You've seen hulled hemp seed as just like an additive on top of your uh, yogurts. You see it in Costco and Whole Foods. Wendy Mosher, CEO of New West Genetics, where would you say the hemp market is in Colorado right now? Uh, booming? nascent, growing? Growing. Growing. Yeah, I would certainly describe it as growing. And just to get back to your fiber question, I, you know, there are a lot of devotees to fiber. And I I think that, you know, we will be able to compete in fiber if we develop kind of these new nanotechnologies with it um, and other kind of processing other than a typical fiber process, because it's very difficult to compete with China right now. You can import a ton Mm. of fiber for $200. So, and they make, they have all the processing for, for fiber clothing. Do we have much processing in Colorado? Uh, of any kind, uh, making into oil or, or we do. I would I would describe it as small to medium scale processing um, for the extraction industry and for both the grain processing. So. All right. Thanks for helping us understand where hemp is right now. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Wendy Mosher, CEO of New West Genetics in Fort Collins. The company is the first to produce a certified U.S. bred hemp seed.
It was big news last year when Colorado lured a huge trade show away from Utah. The outdoor retailer and snow show was looking for a new home because it was fed up with Utah politics. But as it opens in Denver this week, one man is raising some tough questions about the industry as a whole. He is Micah Meyer, and he's actually on a quest to become the youngest to visit all 417 national park sites in one stretch. Michael, welcome to the program. Hey, it's great to be in Colorado. And to understand your concerns about the outdoor industry, I'm going to refer to a piece you wrote recently in Outside Magazine. What was the title? Have you ever seen an openly gay guy in an outdoors ad? Have you ever seen an openly gay guy in an outdoors ad? And how did you uh, answer that on your behalf and perhaps on behalf of, of most people? Well, the answer is no. And I should start out by saying this isn't just gay men. This is the entire LGBT community. So, you know, I hope I can speak for everyone who feels marginalized in this space. But really, when you look at the history, you know, Wells Fargo, Oreo, even Mormon-owned Marriott have all had Pride Month ads. But not a single company in the outdoor industry has ever had a Pride Month ad. Pride Month ad often in June. June, Huge celebration for the LGBT community. That's often recognized by corporate America uh, in magazines, online. And you're saying that has not been true of the outdoor industry. No, you know, it's been really fascinating that the rest of corporate America has really gone after this, quote, gay dollar. And while the outdoors nonprofit area has really recognized that the LGBT community is an underserved one in the outdoors, the for-profit side of this hasn't caught up. So what do you want to see change? Honestly, I would love to just see this June one Pride Month ad. You know, it's um, gay media would jump on this anytime any industry does the first. There's a wave of positive publicity. So if you want guaranteed good coverage, you know, all you have to do is be willing to step out. Isn't that tokenism, though? In other words, so a company runs an ad one month out of the year. What does that do for the gay community? Well, that's more than anyone has been willing to do thus far. So it speaks to the outdoor industry that claims to be very progressive that they're putting their money where their mouth is. What does a gay ad look like? You know, not different than a straight ad. Um, Just instead of having a heterosexual couple, have one that's embracing that is an LGBT couple. Or have someone with rainbow apparel or a rainbow flag on top of a mountain, uh, a kitschy hashtag that represents your company, and put it in the Advocate magazine or in Out magazine or in LGBT news sources. You don't even have to plaster it all over you know, the TV. You can put it where we're going to see it, but let us know that you're inviting us to the outdoors and inviting us to your brand. What is the broader effect of something like that? So imagine that ad is placed in something like The Advocate, for instance. And some kid growing up in the Midwest like yourself, I think you you grew up in Nebraska. Amen, yep. mm -hmm, Sees that ad. Maybe it's two women or two men at Arches or Zion or something. Then what? You know, it's huge. I, I was 19 years old before I met an openly gay adult. And so my image of the LGBT community growing up was drag queens. And I think it would be such a powerful statement to say that LGBT travel is not just beaches and speedos and alcohol. It's standing in front of Delicate Arch. And, you know, for for the entire community, it would help us to show that we're just like everyone else. And for the outdoors industry and the nonprofits trying to make the LGBT community feel welcome, it would show that you are wanted here. You are safe here. You are a part of our community. Okay, so Micah Meyer, you're in town in Colorado Uh, To attend the Outdoor Retailer and Snow Show, which opens uh, later this week. And I'll say that over a thousand brands will showcase their latest products. We are told in terms of 
square footage. It's the largest event ever to be held at the Colorado Convention Center. A spokesperson tells us it'll include a panel on diversity in the outdoors with LGBT representation. And I want to note that this past October, a whole LGBT outdoor summit took place uh, in Seattle, I believe. So sponsors of that event included REI, the North Face, Patagonia. Doesn't that signal a desire from this industry to engage with the LGBT community? It's a start. Yeah, I actually know the organizers of that, Elise Rylander, who's one of the the panelists in this outdoor retailer uh, thing that you mentioned, and then Hannah Malvin. So they're doing some amazing work to really take advantage of this cusp of time that we're at where people are saying, hey, why is the outdoor industry lacking? You know, why are we stuck in this 1990s definition of diversity, which is just women and racial minorities? Why don't we catch up with everyone else to 2018? So... You know, it's exciting. I feel like we're on the precipice of things changing. And so this, you know, these are beginning baby steps. But once again, you know, there's a difference between one event that's in one place that, you know, 150 people attend and really putting it out there in the public and saying, this is a community we want in the outdoors. As we mentioned, you are currently on a trek to visit all 417 National Park Service sites. So that includes national parks, but also monuments, battlefields. I understand you're about two-thirds done. I just finished my two-thirds park, yeah. Okay. Uh, You say if you complete your trip, you would be the youngest person to do so in one go. And uh, I just want to talk about your experience in these places as someone who's gay. Mm -hmm. Um, You write in that piece, have you ever seen an openly gay guy in an outdoors ad? Um, When I'm out in forests, I internally debate if it's safe to say boyfriend while sharing stories with fellow hikers. What's your mindset when when you're in these places? Well, I mean, it's a mindset that all LGBT people have. We are, uh, unlike some other minorities, we're coming out for our entire life. So if I'm talking with someone on the trail and we start to share about our lives, I have to think, as in any situation, is this someone that I can safely share with who I am? Or might I be in physical danger? And I'm out here in a trail in the middle of nowhere. With no cell service. Exactly. So, you know, could I be physically attacked by this person for something that I didn't choose to be? And so it's it's a thought that all of us deal with, um, all members of the LGBT community, no matter where we are. It just happens to be that our cultures seem to be centered in urban areas. So we often feel safer there because there are more of us than out in the middle of nowhere. And the urban area might be a bar culture, the other aspects of gay culture that you think really have gotten more prominence in ads, for instance. Totally. And I think it's a case of the chicken and the egg. You know, uh, somebody I know was told by an outdoor company that there isn't enough of a market, an LGBT market for them to spend money on. And I say, well, you've also never invited us. How do you know there's not a market? And I would hope that my trip and my large Instagram following of a lot of LGBT people proves them wrong. Indeed, you take Instagram photos of yourself with the rainbow flag, this this symbol of the LGBT community um, at many of these sites, the Great Sand Dunes, Devil's Tower. Mm -hmm. What reactions do you get? Um, It's interesting. You know, I, I had one guy in Big Bend National Park in Texas who asked me what the rainbow flag meant. And when I told him, he just grunted and walked away. Um, I have another um, at Delicate Arch and Arches, uh, a lesbian couple came up to me and said, oh, my gosh, this is amazing. Can we use your flag to take a picture? And so really those experiences um, 
as I realized that there was no marketing to our community, I actually went ahead and made a design of five National Park Service sites and combined them all into one T-shirt. And I sell those on my website, micahmeyer.com. And it was really because people were messaging me and saying, there's nothing out there that represents us. Can you make something and use your platform so we feel included? And so I have these awesome shirts now, which have the design. And I use the name of a great organization in D.C. called Pride Outside, which Hannah Malvin runs. And it's just a way for for people, whether they are part of the community or their allies, to show when they're out there on the trail, hey, we support you being here no matter who you are. A sort of different version of the trail angel, I suppose. Yeah. Um, I imagine it's not cheap to to cross the country and, and visit all of these park sites. Have you ever lost a sponsor or not been able to draw a sponsor because you are openly gay? Yes. So when I started this, I actually contacted 800 different companies trying to get corporate sponsorship. And essentially, I was told I wasn't famous enough. Um, But also, I realized very quickly on that since there were no LGBT figures in the outdoor industry, I needed to straight wash myself. So I lowered my voice on the phone, tried to sound real butch, just because I was terrified that if they knew this about me, they'd say, oh, we can't be associated with that. And unfortunately, one of my worst fears um, came to fruition, uh, an organization that was sponsoring me. Um, told me in writing that they were not going to be working with me anymore starting in 2018 because I was doing too much LGBT outreach. It seems like you're not naming them for a reason. Uh, I'm I'm not able okay. to, unfortunately. Did you pick someone else up as a sponsor? No, I haven't yet. Um, it, there's really a void. And, you know, I really need to thank thank the individual people who are following this. Was it not for the individual donations that come in through my website, micahmeyer.com? I wouldn't be on the road today. You're uh, ever the salesman dropping that into this conversation. I got to stay alive here, survive on the road. Micah Meyer talking about LGBT inclusion in the outdoor industry. As we said, he's currently on track to visit all 417 National Park Service sites. And you can follow his journey on Instagram. We'll link to that at CPR.org. A note that later this week, will speak with an outdoor retailer who is American Indian about perceptions he faces inside and outside his community. In our series Breaking Bread, we look for common ground among people with vastly different politics. Most recently, it's brought us to the workplace. How do co-workers who spend a good chunk of their lives together navigate this? Today, Mary Duran and Deborah Harold. Mary and I met in 2009, and we were both working as nurses, as peers. And then over the last, how many years would that be, Mary? Going on nine. Nine years, yeah. Um, Mary has become a supervisor and then a program coordinator, and I still work at the same level as a nurse, um, but we've been friends through the whole process. I, I had a question for Deborah, actually. In our work and with our team, and we have like 20-some nurses that work with us, I think most of us are on the liberal side, and Deborah's the outlier, and I was wondering how that felt for her. It's interesting to be in a position where I think probably it's assumed that I'm fairly liberal by most of my coworkers, and it's interesting to be in a position where an assumption that someone is making about you, they believe they're making it as like a favorable belief about you, you know, that they're assuming a good thing about you. And I think maybe that position can make it hard to be very forthcoming at times and say, no, that what you believe to be a good assumption about me actually isn't entirely accurate. And 
not being sure how people might react. I have gotten some fairly negative reactions from some individuals when they find out I'm more conservative. But then I can say, in the case of Mary's and my friendship, Mary, you've only been very kind and open and wanting to hear more about who I am and what I think and believe. And the way you treat me makes me feel very safe to share what I value and what my political views are. It's funny. I think sometimes um, coworkers may say, wow, like you two can get into some very intense conversations or, um, you know, I don't know that I'd, I want to have that kind of conversation. And I think Mary and I look at each other and are like, oh, I, I, we weren't arguing. We weren't, you know, upset at each other. These are just really important topics or there are some important thoughts behind these topics. And I love the conversations I have with Mary. I love getting to say, ooh, Mary, I heard this on the radio or I read this in the paper. What do you think? I want to know your perspective on this. So I'm a lesbian and I have children. So that's, I guess, where a lot of my prejudice against the evangelical Christians come from because a lot of the right do feel like I shouldn't have the same rights as other people. And what impact is that on my children? And what message does that give the bigger society to allow people to become prejudiced against me and my family? I think the way it's changed me is that I'm less prejudiced um, for evangelical Christians and Republicans and conservatives that I used to I used to have a very narrow viewpoint about who they were and how they felt about me. <laughs> um, but I don't now I, I I want to learn about somebody before I make a judgment about them. I think potentially that I have been in the position of perhaps assumptions being made about me in the workplace, again, because I work in a, a more liberal context, that is brought to my attention. Where is it that I make assumptions about other people? Um, where is it that because of a context or because of their gender or their race or their ethnicity, I make assumptions about their political viewpoints or their values? My work is to serve the underserved. It's what Mary and I do uh, day in, day out. And for um, people to assume about me that because I'm conservative, I don't care whether or not people are going to have Medicaid or if, that I don't care if food stamps is being cut back. Um, I do care about those things. I do care about people having those needs met. And those assumptions sometimes can feel hurtful. Thanks for sticking in the fray. I think a lot of people might come up against someone that believes differently from them and simply choose to avoid them or simply choose to avoid those conversations. And you haven't. You've been willing for me to have a different viewpoint and not just make it safe so that I can have it, but actually communicate to me that you want to know what I think. And that means a lot. Thanks for sticking with me and being able to stand up to me. And even though I've actually become your supervisor, even when we're talking about even work-related things, you're willing to like say, Mary, you better think about that. Or Mary, I, I disagree with you. And you're always open to disagree with me. Mary Doran and Deborah Harold, who met working as nurses in Metro Denver, they're part of Breaking Bread, conversations across the political divide. Do you have a story like this? And it doesn't have to be at work. Text Breaking Bread to 720-358-4029. And if that number flew by you, it's also at CPR.org. On any given day, hundreds of people sit in jails across the state, not because they've been convicted of something, but because they can't afford to get out. 
The situation is both expensive and unconstitutional. And as CPR's Allison Sherry reports, it's causing judges to rethink things. Let's start with the unconstitutional part. A big Texas court decision last year found that it violates the 14th Amendment for people to sit around in jail before they're convicted of anything. It was a ruling Sean Day took to heart. You can't set a bond amount that a person can't post. You can't treat somebody with money differently from somebody who doesn't have money. Day is Aurora's presiding municipal judge. After the Texas case, he mostly got rid of money bonds in his court. He's replaced them with something called personal recognizance bonds, or PR bonds which is basically a promise that the person will show up for a future court date. Court is back in session. Folks, good morning. We'll call the case of People v. Edward Rodriguez, E62199. Also, keeping people out of jail will Rodriguez, save cities money. Jailing people and then transferring them to court can cost more than $100 a day for a city, and that can really add up. The amount of people who are being detained pre-adjudication, pre-trial, there's, I think, a concern by all of us in the system of those numbers. It can be improved. Another reason Day and other judges around the state are beginning to go this direction is because money bonds just aren't as effective as you might think. There is no science behind people paying to get out of jail and then returning to court. Most people who don't show up for court dates aren't on the lam or sitting on a beach or something. They don't show up because they forget about it. Bo Zirup is the chief deputy district attorney in Grand Junction. Pre-trial, you're concerned with court appearance and public safety. Those are your two concerns. You're not allowed to or you shouldn't impose any type of conditions on people for purposes of punishment because they haven't been convicted yet. Judges in Grand Junction used to have a set bail based on what someone was charged with. Shoplifting was one amount. Assault was another. But several years ago, judges were given a lot more discretion. Zirup supports that change. Should this person be in custody or out of custody? Most places, judges don't make that decision. They just set a monetary amount of bail and roll the dice. And if the person posts it, they post it. If they don't, they don't. And the judge pretty much punts that decision to the defendant and the bondsman. The court will enter uh, in order for $647.79. So far, bail reform in Colorado has happened locally. City judges have more power to set policy in their courtrooms. What is your plea then to that charge of a three Corinne McGid is a part-time judge in North Glen, Golden, and Denver. When someone is booked into jail, she usually gets an email. She'll look over the quick details of the case and then usually grants a PR bond electronically so that person can get out right away. She does this on her weekends, even on vacation. I don't feel like it's right to hold someone for very long um, when they can't meet a low-level bond. But McGid isn't sure she supports getting rid of money bonds altogether. She says it's the only leverage she has as a judge in some cases, and that people need consequences for their actions. It might be their eighth failure to appear. Well, there's got to be some sort of consequence. We've got to figure out a way to get them there. And if it's only monetary bond, then what else are we going to do? In Boulder, judges are working on an alternative. There is a large homeless population there, and the court has a couple of people working on outreach, mostly via Facebook, to remind them of hearing dates. Presiding Judge Linda Cook says that's working. For many people, a phone call is enough. The approach could go statewide. A lawmaker plans to introduce a bill this legislative session that would test whether text reminders get people to show up for upcoming court dates, kind of like what you might get now from the dentist or the hairdresser. Democrat Pete Lee says the consequences of forgetting about court can be devastating. 
what happens under those circumstances is that, you know, a warrant's out for a guy, so he gets picked up, he gets taken to the county jail and, and thus disabled from doing his job. Rebecca Wallace at the American Civil Liberties Union expects to see even bigger bond reforms coming to Colorado. And she's heartened that it's already started in some local courts. Some of them, I would really say, are the leaders in the state. You know, I I like to think they're doing it because it's the right thing. It's certainly the constitutional thing. And they're really leading the way and showing that it's possible. But this kind of reform is definitely still piecemeal, courtroom by courtroom. And if policymakers do try to tackle bail at the statewide level, judges say they want a seat at the table. I'm Allison Sherry, CPR News. And then there were 20. You probably know by now that Amazon announced finalists for where it'll locate a second headquarters. Denver made the list. Metro leaders want the 50,000 jobs and billions in investment it'll bring. It's all a bit like a burlesque show, according to our colleagues at KUOW in Seattle. They've put together Primed, a podcast about what happens when Amazon comes to your town. Here are the hosts, Joshua McNichols and Carolyn Adolph. I mean, Amazon is going to get back to this top 20, and they're going to ask to see a little more skin. You know, (laughs) some of the cities have already shown a lot, but Amazon is going to want to know which city is going to make their wildest fantasies come true. You know, Who's going to take it all off? We are talking about tax incentives here, right? I mean, not a striptease. Excuse me. What could be sexier than tax incentives? <laughs> okay, so who's the front runner? Sarah Holder of City Lab says if this was a game of darts, one conglomeration would be an easy hit. Well, that's actually a great way to do it if we are talking about my favorite, which is probably Washington, D.C., because there is a concentration of three dots, um, Montgomery County, Northern Virginia, and D.C., right next to each other. So you you do have a a good shot of hitting one of those, um, three out of 20. What does D.C. offer that other cities don't? Well, it's got a highly educated workforce, and it's a workforce that kind of understands how government works, which is useful if you're a company that wants all levels of government to put their data on your cloud, right? Mm. And to be honest, there are some dark clouds right now in Washington for tech companies. I mean, they lost on net neutrality, and there's this idea that tech companies need more regulations. So it pays to be in the game. You know, it's significant that Jeff Bezos recently bought this big house in D.C. WAMU reporter Martin Ostermule told me it's right off Embassy Road near the Obamas. The city has a long history of folks in power, in influence, with money, who live in nice houses, having these kind of parties and these salon discussions and that sort of stuff where where relationships are built and deals are made. So, yeah, I mean, if Jeff Bezos is interested in politics... First of all, being in D.C. is the place you want to be and having a place off of Embassy Row, a nice house where he can invite people over and schmooze them and wine them and dine them. I mean, it makes perfect sense. The house used to be a textile museum. Bezos is totally revamping it. So what else does D.C. have to offer? What's the secret sauce? Very literally, it's called mumbo sauce. And it's kind of like barbecue sauce, but it's a little sweeter and tangier. And it's, you put it on chicken wings. It's amazing. It literally is like a homegrown sauce in, in, the, in the D.C. region. Now, that alone is not going to attract Amazon, um, though it should. Actually, the three locations around D.C. could combine forces to make a super bid. A couple of cities made interesting cases as well. Denver. I mean, what a city of transformations. 
Yeah, Denver used to be this oil town with this giant smog cloud over it. Here's Ben Marcus of Colorado Public Radio. You couldn't see the Rocky Mountains uh, in the 80s. Sometimes the brown cloud was so bad, but we cleaned up the air. It's a beautiful place to live. You're close to ski resorts. That may be the other thing, right? Like people who are interested in um, moving and and attracting talent to a place, it can't just be Kansas, right? Uh, Craft beer is big. Marijuana is big. Hey, Seattle has all that stuff, too. I know. But you don't have to have those things to be on Amazon's shortlist. Look at Philadelphia. We spoke to Jim Saxa. He's a reporter at WHYY. Like everyone sort of thinks of Philadelphia as the boorish drunk, like Eagles fans. They're just like guzzling cheesesteaks and getting into fights. And we're not that. We're not that at all. Um, We're actually a bunch of really nice people who only do that on Sundays. Philly's more than cheesesteaks and, like, nasty sports fans, right? Well, of course. I mean, it has 100,000 tech workers already. And, by the way, an affordable lifestyle. It's hard hard to find that. I've read about affordable lifestyles. (laughs) (laughs) I also spoke with reporter Stephanie Stokes of WABE in Atlanta. And she says, you know, Atlanta's a business-friendly place. They've got a lot of tech companies there already, like MailChimp. But more importantly, choosing Atlanta would help Amazon address one of its core weaknesses. There's a lot of diversity here. We are this big city in the south. We are a city that has so much history, um, especially with civil rights. This is the home of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And we've had um, black mayors leading the city and black leadership in the city for almost 50 years. And it's not just black leadership. They've got universities and historically black colleges cranking out women and minority tech talent. And Amazon has been criticized for the fact that its leadership and workforce are dominated by white dudes. Yeah. Choosing Atlanta would show that Amazon is basically running at that criticism head on rather than hiding its head in the sand. Yeah, they'd also be running at traffic, though, if they picked Atlanta. Atlanta's congestion is on the INRIC's list of worst traffic hotspots. However, its public transit system is ranked as one of the nation's best. Oh, so there's that. Yeah. We are the prime location. We are the prime location. We are the prime location for HQ2. We've been talking about all the good reasons cities give for why Amazon should choose them. But the truth is... No one knows who Amazon will choose. Here's what Amazon says are its criteria. Good highways, airports, universities, an educated labor pool, cultural diversity, recreational opportunities. Amazon says now it'll explore the 20 proposals. You know, see what more these places can reveal. A decision is coming this year. No word on when exactly. But there are all these wild cards, too, right? I mean, things not in the official request for proposals, like where its top executives might want to live. I mean, Jeff Wilkie, he's like the number two or three guy. He's the CEO of Worldwide Consumer Business at Amazon, and he's from Pittsburgh. Ah, and Pittsburgh has a lot of robotics. And here's another wild card, the quality of the YouTube videos submitted in this bidding process. If they're going to judge them on the quality, there's one YouTube video that is exceptionally bad. Merry Christmas, Mr. Scrooge. Bah! Humbug, Alexa. How can anyone be happy? 
Especially in such a cesspool of a city as this. What is this? I think the concept is that Ebenezer Scrooge from The Christmas Carol is all bah humbug about Atlanta, and then later at the end he accepts Atlanta into his heart. I'm not sure that works. (laughs) I think Charles Dickens' corpse is throwing up in his mouth a little bit right now. It's all true. Atlanta is a marvelous city. Oh, happy holidays. Happy holidays to us all. (laughs) That is the latest episode of Primed from our colleagues at KUOW in Seattle, where Amazon built its first headquarters. You can join a nationwide conversation about HQ2 on Facebook. Search for KUOW Primed. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner.